Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pekulski. As always, we're searching the world to bring you the brightest people to ultimately assist you in building the body of your dreams, whether that's building muscle, losing fat, connecting deeply with your body through your breath, through your meditations, through any type of movement that you're already participating in. Our objective is turning the exercise you already do into the most effective exercise possible. So ultimately, efficiency is your friend. You can get the most out of the time and effort you're already investing in the gym and outside the gym. So thank you for being here. Today's podcast is brought to you by By Optimizers. By Optimizers, if you're anyone who's interested in optimizing health and fitness and ultimately building muscle, you want to get the most out of what you eat. Not just about what you eat, it's about what your body does with you, with what you eat. And enzymes have become a massive part of my morning routine, of my post-workout routine. And ultimately, every time I have a meal that consumes any larger amount of animal protein, I want to make sure my body has what it needs to break it down. Now that I'm over 40, yep, I'm over 40. I'm going to let that slip. Actually, 41. Um, I know that my digestion is suffering. I know that as we age, our, di- our digestion, our ability to break down protein because of the diminishing amount of acid and enzymes in our stomach becomes harder. That's why you see a lot of men who have these bloated, distended bellies. Oftentimes, that's a microbiome issue. That's also a digestion, digestion issue, obviously visceral fat as well. Um, but we want to address all those things to make sure that our body is actually getting the most out of the nutrients. So we're not always hungry. The reason people are sometimes hungry is because maybe they're eating a lot of food, but the body isn't absorbing and assimilating that. So our job is not just to eat better foods. That's step one. Step two is now I want my body to make sure it's able and, and uh, able to do what it needs to do, able and uh, ready to do what it needs to do. So head over to buyoptimizers.com and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up, MUSCLE10, to get hooked up with 10% off everything you can possibly get at Optimizers, the number one product you should all be taking, Mass Zymes. I love that product. And ultimately, Mag Breakthrough is another one that's you know literally never leave home without my magnesium, seven different magnesium chelates to help my body uh, ultimately contract muscles more effectively, relax muscles, and relax from a high-stress day. Today's podcast is with none other than my amazing friend, Brad Schoenfeld. Brad is a researcher from New York City who studies muscle building, studies hypertrophy. Brad is certainly one of the top people in the world when it comes to understanding hypertrophy. He's written many books on the topic. He's written many textbooks. He now teaches a master's level course in a university. And Brad is just truly a encyclopedia when it comes to the mechanisms behind muscle building. And what he's going to tell you might surprise you. So I wouldn't miss a minute of today's podcast. Don't forget to check out Bioptimizers when the podcast is done. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. We have so many more amazing podcasts coming at you this month, Muscle Building Month in the Muscle Intelligence Community. Head over to Facebook and join the Muscle Intelligence private community where you can engage with, engage with me and my coaches and our entire amazing community. We've got about 20,000 people in there now uh, who are highly engaged. We've had in the past a community of millions of people. We ended up shutting that down because we had so much spam coming in there. We wanted to create a really tight community. It grows so fast of ultimately people who have engaged in the Muscle Intelligence MI40 programs in the past and uh, so much value coming out of that group. So if you want to share an MI40 transformation story, if you've already been part of one of our programs, Head over there. We're going to help you help support your journey to live your greatest life in a body you love. Enjoy the podcast with Brad Schoenfeld. Well, welcome back to the show, my friend. Always a pleasure, Ben. Yeah, man. You are deep in the world of muscle building research. 
back into research, as you just let me know, after probably a little bit of a hiatus due to COVID. We recently had Andy Galpin on the show. He said he's still not back in the lab. They're trying to get back in. They're doing a little bit of it now, but uh, just taking time, right? Taking time to kind of get back to the swing of things. And I'd be curious to hear, uh, so, you know, just get an update from what's been going on in your life personally and professionally. Yeah. So uh, as you were saying, COVID really did uh, take a toll on research. Uh, I was midway through a study uh, when COVID hit. We were four weeks in. We had over 500 man hours committed to the study and just shut down. I mean, like everything. And it was uh, almost a year until we were able to get back in the lab. So we got back in the lab last September. Uh, we're able to carry out a really nice study that's in review now. And we're actually now carrying out Two years later, the study that we had to shut down midway through COVID. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've also been collaborating with a lot of other labs. So each different each country has their own rules, obviously. And so some countries didn't shut down at all. So I was fortunate enough to be collaborating with other labs that were able to carry out research. But uh, as of now, uh, God willing, we're we're on a good path, and hopefully that'll stay that way. So, what is the current research you're working on? You say there's two studies that are really really current. Yeah, so we, we had one that we finished um, last, we finished in December, it was carried out last semester starting in September, and a really interesting study, we looked at the effects of loaded stretch, uh, so inter loaded interset stretch, basically you do a set, you then stretch between sets, and uh, and see if there's differences between just how So interset rather than intraset? Well, inter is between sets. So, it, right. no, rather, so rather than during the set. Yeah, correct. It, you wouldn't stretch. Correct. So it would be in the rest period of the set. Uh, so intraset meaning within the rest period. So one group, uh, basically, it was two minutes rest. Uh, and it wasn't even a group. We had what's called a within subject design, where the same subject did both conditions. And we did this in the calves. So we did uh, straight leg and bent leg calf raises. One leg just did standard rest, uh, two minutes rest. The other uh, leg did a 20-second uh, stretch, interset stretch, and then did the balance, uh, whatever it was, you know, 100 seconds, then were committed to the rest. It's basically the same rest, but one, one group did uh, 20 seconds of that with, this, with the same load that they used in the sets. And uh, really interesting findings. There was, uh, I'm going to give you, you a scoop now. Hopefully, this will be published soon, but um, the... So we looked at the soleus, uh, the uh, soleus, and both heads of the gastroc, the lateral and medial heads of the gastroc. In the gastroc, there really wasn't much difference from a muscular development standpoint. A little bit of a benefit, potential benefit to uh, the stretch, but not in the way that I would think probabilistically that there was an issue. But the soleus was uh, showed greater growth for the uh, stretch condition for the interset stretch, and um, there also was some strength. Uh, increases in the group. We looked at isometric strength using a dynamometer uh, for the stretch condition. Despite, I, I will say this, despite roughly a 10% decrease in volume load. So if you look at the, they had to reduce the load. We did the same number of sets per uh, per group, you know, per condition. But the group with the stretch, if we had to reduce the weight, we wanted to keep them within a given rep range. So uh, sometimes we had to reduce the, the load. Anyway, it's interesting. There is some research in bird models. This goes back in one of the uh, one of the reasons that I carried this out is that there has been this line of evidence in animal models where they would go back, particularly in birds, they taped the bird's wing uh, so in a stretch position and then hung little little weights on their uh, 
on their wings. And they did this for days at a time. So it didn't have what's called the ecological validity, the real world, uh, you know, uh, it didn't have the real world connotations that you would in traditional human training, but it gave at least a uh, hypothesis whereby perhaps loaded stretch might have benefits. And interestingly, in these bird studies, they did see more of a benefit to the slow twitch muscles. And for those who don't know, I know you do, but the soleus is primarily a slow twitch muscle. It's uh, 80% slow twitch fibers, whereas the gastroc is roughly an even mix. It's roughly 50-50, perhaps a little more fast twitch. So anyway, uh, interesting findings. Of course, it's one study. There is some, it's consistent with some other research, not consistent with others. So we need more research in this area, but that was an interesting study. Uh, the study we're carrying out now, which was stopped, I think is a really interesting study. We have, this, uh, this is in trained subjects. We have one group that is maintaining a, um, a repetition range. So basically we're doing a 10 RM at the beginning of the study to determine what their 10 rep max is. And we're keeping them, we're keeping one group in an eight to 12 rep range. So as they get stronger, we're adding more loads so that they stay in this eight to 12 range. The other group, Whatever weight they start with, they're going to stay with the entire study. It's an eight-week study, and they're just going to do more reps. Both groups are training to failure, but the group that uh, is in what we're calling the reps group is just going to keep doing reps until they can't do anymore. So basically, this is going to give insights into, is it really necessary to increase load, or can you get, as long as you are maintaining um, sufficient levels and consistent levels of effort? So that the you're both training very you know close to failure, uh, is there a difference whether you add load or just keep doing more reps? And so the volume equated, I, I presume. Like how are you going to do that? Well, sets equated, correct. Sets, equated. sets are equated. The volume load, we don't. Uh, I'm assuming that probably the reps would have a higher volume load because uh, I would think so. One group's going to have more load on the bar, but they're doing fewer reps. Volume load is just reps times load for the entire. Uh, I'm assuming. Or, or speculating, I, I guess you'd say, that the uh, reps probably would be able to increase their volume load more, but we'll yeah. see. So speaking of the first study, the soleus stretching study, what's your hypothesis on mechanistically what's going on there? Like, so is there is there actually a, an increase in hypertrophy or just the increase in strength? Like, did you actually see a measurable um, increase in size? Um, and also, what are, you, what are you guessing mechanistically is happening there? Is it, is it the soft tissue adaptation? Is it the actual muscular adaptation? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, you know, mechanists, we didn't do any mechanistic work here, so it's pure speculation on my end. Um, so yeah, the the um, there was an increase in strength. And, and again, these were modest. I will say that it wasn't like this huge differences in growth. Uh, there was, I would say, modest increases in both soleus hypertrophy and in strength. Um, you know, whether that's practically meaningful for a bodybuilder, I would say it probably is, but we can debate the practical meaningfulness. But yeah. Um, it was more than where the probability of these uh, differences seem true, so, you know, so that's what we look at in research and we can then argue, but I would say they're modest. Certainly it's not like it's going to make you huge to do. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's a, a timeline thing too, right, Brad? Like ultimately how much muscle are you going to put on eight weeks realistically in one muscle Absolutely. In, in, a, in a person who's probably not massively motivated to do so. They're just kind of like, yeah, they're coming in casually, you know? Yeah, and and excellent point. And also, we don't know would these gains continue over time, or would yeah, they? And this might they be short term gains, or would you keep getting more if the gains would magnify over time? 
then that would be even more appreciable. And then we could start to, I think, have a consensus as to meaningfulness. I mean, certainly from a bodybuilding standpoint, I would say that any gains are good gains. So, um, and, and by the way, these were untrained subjects. And the reason is generally I like to carry out my studies and train subjects. But you have to remember that you have to look at the, um, the design of a study in terms of what you can accomplish. We prohibited the subjects from doing any other lower body training. You tell me what well-trained subject is going to say, all right, I'm not going to train. I'm just going to do calf raises and not train my legs for eight weeks. It's, even if they would say they're going to do it because we're paying them, uh, they can go out and start training them on their own. We, we wouldn't know. So I didn't want to have that potential confounding issue. Um, but when you ask mechanistically, um, I don't necessarily think it's due to the strength, because if it's the strength, we would have assumed similar results in the gastrocnemius, and we didn't get those. Um, there is a, so we're doing this immediately after the final eccentric action. Uh, and, and this is important because so basically they do their set. And then when they finish their eccentric action, they just descend into that loaded stretch and maintain it. There is some evidence that there is a um, potentiating effect of eccentric actions whereby, on strength at least, uh, on the force producing capacity of the muscle, where if you go from an eccentric action and then do a stretch after, it helps to potentiate the force producing effect of that stretch. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense. But th that's a, we're speculating that may be involved in there. And that, let's say, if you would uh, wait a period of time. Maybe you don't get that potentiating effect because there is some other research that doesn't show a benefit, but they actually had a transition period before they went into the stretch. So these are all things that this is very preliminary research. Uh, yeah. I'm certainly not willing to, to say that, hey, this is the, uh, everyone should be doing interset stretch. But I will say that in lieu of evidence against it, there doesn't seem to be a detrimental effect. And there's a potential benefit to it. Right. So to me, that's always a uh, strategy that you're looking to employ. And particularly, there was no added time. So this was a, a time-efficient strategy in that you don't need to add more time onto your training. Right. So, Brad, I, I'll throw something in your ear for future thought around research. Maybe compare and contrasting the stretch benefit as compared to the activation benefit. And when I say activation, I specifically mean like going into the shortest position possible and actually just sustaining that without resistance for, you know, 20 to 30 seconds um, and then repeating the set. So between, this is an example being if you're doing a calf raise, you just extend your legs, like fully straight and like you point your toe like a ballerina, mm -hmm. try to just really contract in the short position, no resistance necessary. And I do that with clients and the results I see from that is exponential. Like it, it's just, again, for me, it's like the nervous system learning how to contract that thing more effectively, more efficiently, uh, just ends up having a greater effect. Again, that I, I think that actually compounds over time. Like I think I was even doing that at, at my peak. And if I can really cue in my nervous system's ability to feel that muscle at the highest, uh, at, the, at the peak contraction position, the shortest position, then um, ultimately makes a huge difference. So we carried out that study. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, this goes back, I think, about two or three years now. It's called, you can look it up, it's called To Flex or Rest. Uh, it was published in uh, Frontiers in Physiology. So it's open access. You can read this. But we had, uh, and these were trained subjects, and we had them do what are called iso holds. Uh, that's what you're talking about, I guess. In like so biceps? In yeah. So we used biceps, triceps, and quads. We didn't do the calves. Uh, we did full body workout, biceps, uh, triceps, and quads. Um, the interesting thing was we did only saw a benefit in the uh, rectus femoris. So we looked at the rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, 
biceps and triceps. What was the position used, Brad? So like specific to the bicep, was it just here or was it actually at shoulder flexion as well? Uh, no, we had them do, we had it held out like this. And, yeah, so and my, my, I would go as far as to say it would make a difference in like the shortest position in the muscle, meaning like way up here in shoulder flexion for the bicep, obviously just the long head and the mm -hmm. tricep being in a shoulder extended position. And maybe the rec fem because, it was, you know, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's because it's, it got into a shorter position. My, my postulation is always like, the shorter you can get the muscle and actually be able to contract it, the more it transfers to mid-range. Yeah. So the rec fem, uh, the reason that we, uh, I'd have to go back and look at this now because it's been a while, but the reason that we uh, surmised that the rec fem might've gotten more benefits, as I remember, we did not do leg extensions. So leg extensions are more specific to rec fem hypertrophy. Whereas if you do squats, they get the vasti nicely, but mm -hmm. they are not a great exercise for the rec fem. And I think the, our, I remember our, our hypothesis was that you're getting, and I, I don't think we did the uh, leg extensions, and that basically it, it allowed for greater hypertrophy of the rec fem since it wasn't getting sufficient stimulation. I think we mm -hmm. did squats and leg press, if I recall, and didn't do uh, leg extensions. So anyway, but yeah, that again, it's one study, it needs more uh more study and to your point we did not do it wasn't like a really short position so uh that's something that we yeah. bear more so research. my 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 theory behind it if you care i'll share it is um, the ability to generate force through any muscle is, is often contingent on stability at the proximal end right so if i want to generate maximum output at, at the bicep i need to be able to generate stability at the proximal end and so by creating more stability at the shoulder joint with that kind of tertiary action of the bicep and, and deflection, I'm, I'm creating a more stable environment at the shoulder, as well as turning up the, the neurological activity in the bicep, I believe. Um, and so that's, that would be the benefit I would see. And that, that's why I would say that, uh, you know, if you were to do the bicep, that shoulder flexion may make a difference, may not, but I'd be curious to see what the benefit is. Yeah. And I would also say that the, um, when I devised the study, it goes from the fact that bodybuilders in their posing routines um, develop a tremendous amount of muscle control. And by my yep. my thought, I've always been a believer because I, I was a bodybuilder, not, not at your level, but uh, but certainly my my posing helped my mind muscle. I felt helped my mind muscle connection, helped me train better. So also, again, we did it was a short term eight week study. Would that have benefits over time where subjects would get more in tune with their my muscle connection and be able to use that within their training. Those are all things that need further study that uh, we do one yeah. study, but each study begets another study. Yeah. So we spoke, gosh, it's been years since we last spoke on the podcast. And I know you just constantly study muscle building and hypertrophy. And I'm curious, um, mechanistically, uh, if things have changed in your mind, as far as the influence of what's happening in the body, I'm, I'm just curious, like, I always want to stay on top of what's happening mechanistically in hypertrophy. I know that, you know, the last time we spoke, it was the three basic mechanisms, but there was some kind of doubt whether or not muscle damage had any actual benefit. And I'm curious in the last, I think it's been at least three years, have uh, the research shown anything different or has your, uh, have your beliefs changed? Uh, so we've gotten more research. I think if anything, it's kind of clouded the situation more. Um, certainly. So he, I'll give you my opinion on this. Certainly, muscle uh, mechanical tension is the primary driver of hypertrophy. You don't, you just don't grow at least certainly substantially if you don't have a mechanical load stimulus. Um, 
whether metabolic stress and muscle damage enter into it still remains problematic. First of all, when we're trying to devise these studies, there are too many confounding issues. When you, when you initiate muscle damage, it's going to have effects on mechanical tension and other factors. Same with metabolic stress. So when you're trying to devise ecologically valid studies that look at this, when you alter one variable, you necessarily alter others, which makes it, it just muddies up the waters yeah. in terms of coming to a conclusion. Um, we're going to be having a study that's, uh, I think it'll be scheduled for next year that hopefully will get some more clarity on it. But look, I, here's things I will say. They've now discovered over 200 metabolites that are produced during exercise. So when we look at metabolic stress, people generally think of lact, uh, lactic acid, lactate, and hydrogen ions, calcium. Um, but there's so many more that may have uh, implications in this. Uh, and even with the lactate, the hydrogen ions, and certainly calcium, there's a lot we still don't know. Uh, I, I would say again, it's uh, murky. Number one, if they're mechanism, uh, if they are mechanisms, and if so, are they additive? Are they redundant? And same with muscle damage. I mean, so with muscle damage, one thing that's certainly clear is that too much muscle damage is a negative. People that like to walk out, or they think they're doing justice by walking out of the gym, like yeah. Frankenstein, where they can't you know, lower their, their arms and they're walking with their knees extended because they can't flex them. Yep. Uh, they've done too much damage where basically the body needs to repair itself and they can't train properly. Uh, but the question is, is there a sweet spot? Is that mediated through satellite cells? Certainly we know that muscle damage has beneficial effects on satellite cell proliferation and differentiation, which are have been shown to be important factors in muscle hypertrophy. Whether again, though, that is redundant to mechanical stimuli when you get beyond a certain point, or is it additive? Those are questions that uh, remain yeah. to be uh, figured out. I often suggest like three out of 10, as far as the soreness, like it, and never go over five out of 10. Like if you're over a five out of 10, it's too much. Completely. And for my clients, I'm like, your, your goal is three out of 10. And so, you know, sometimes that's super subjective. I just want you to try to land around three out of 10. And that that's a hard thing to do. And, and again, there's definitely times where I've been a nine out of 10 and you feel accomplished, but usually it takes a week to recover and ultimately you end up leaving with more pain than progress. So I uh, totally agree on that. And yeah. 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 Amazing, man. Great insights. Um, I think it's by know that. by the way, the, the issue with soreness too, is that it's very variable between people. Uh, two people can do the exact same workout and one is massively sore and the other. So soreness, while it has certain relevance to muscle damage, it is not a, an exact. Right. Uh, and correlate. perception, right? Right. Like you yeah, know, it, what we may sore to you, like I may be like, oh my God, this is excruciating. Whereas to you, like, yeah, I'm good. And there is, seems to be differences between males and females where females yeah. don't get as sore, perhaps mediated through estrogen. And so, again, that's while soreness is a general indicator, it's a very crude indicator. And uh, I certainly, though, just from a perception standpoint, like you said, if you're really sore, it's going to be difficult for you to, to train. I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts and beliefs are around um, mechanistically what's actually causing the soreness, because you hear different theories that you know, it's, it's chemical, meaning, it, you know, it's some type of biochemical shift, uh, acid or whatever in, in the muscle that's causing this discomfort that ultimately it's some type of mechanical shortening in the muscles temporarily um, that can maybe be alleviated. So, so what I'm getting to is I ultimately want to know, let's say we do leave the gym and two days later, we're a seven to 10. What are kind of best course of actions to alleviate that, right? Is it illicit? I mean, we know like the basic things in blood flow and movement, but I'm curious mechanistically, um, if there's something specific, like, hey, this is happening, therefore we should do that. 
Yeah, so the best um, evidence at this point, from my perspective, is that it, it probably is mostly due to uh, alterations in the extracellular matrix, which sits above the sarcolemma, the uh, muscle membrane. Uh, and the extracellular matrix, by the way, has uh, a lot of important functions in hypertrophy. But anyway, it's it's a, a layer that sits above the um, the sarcolemma, the muscle membrane, and there's structural alterations to it that allow uh, chemicals, ke ke various noxious chemicals, if you will, to interact, uh, free radicals and other uh, other molecules. And that nociceptors, which are pain receptors within the, the body, sense that. But again, as, as you said, people's, first of all, that, so that would indicate that it's not necessarily related to damage of the muscle, the uh, contractile elements themselves, but it could be more uh, extracellular matrix damage, which might have other factors. Usually they occur in tandem, uh, but not necessarily. Um, as far as what uh, can be done, uh, you kind of hit on the the primary um, um, factor that would be beneficial is activity, being moderately doing, uh, you know, not sitting around basically. So being yeah. moderately active for the tissues that have been affected. Uh, if you sit around, so you, you're just not getting your blood flow going properly. And as you mentioned uh, or hinted at, uh, nutrient delivery is very important for for the repair uh, of, of tissue. Um, but some people, a massage can't hurt. Uh, some people do feel it might be placebo because it's, it's hard to sham in research massage, but some people do ex uh, report experiencing lesser delayed onset muscle soreness post-massage. Um, foam rolling, some people feel. But again, these might be more placebo effects. But even yeah. if, the, you know what, if they're placebo and they help you, uh, even if they're not actually doing it, it's a good thing. So yeah. Uh, but be active is the most important thing. Yeah, I often tell the story uh, that really shifted my belief around what's uh, what post-workout soreness is, where I walked in. I was probably a 9 out of 10 in soreness. I trained legs. I was getting a little limpier or something. I just, like, crushed it and, you know, just, like, literally really jacked up, really, really sore. And I walked into a therapy session with a guy who does muscle activation techniques, Greg Roscoff, who's a great friend of mine in Denver, and uh, I walked in, literally limping, couldn't move. I was like, so I couldn't walk upstairs. And I left out with zero soreness and it never came back. It wasn't like temporary. And I was like, okay. And he doesn't do massage, right? He does muscle activation. So it's not like he was even physically touching that area. He was touching other areas of my body. And his and he was like, hey, we're going to make the mobility better at these joints that are rigid. And so basically my thought was, you know, what I deduce actually happened was maybe he took the sympathetic nervous system offline, brought it down a little bit, brought, you know, realigned the structure, structural balance. And the body just like opened up and I had zero soreness when I left the office, which is 90 minutes later. And I was like, this, this completely blew my mind and turned my, my understanding of what I thought damage was on head. I was like, I don't understand what this is. And that's why I asked that question. Cause it's so obvious that it's not an actual mechanical thing. Cause otherwise it would continue. It's, it's not like a cut where it's like, you know, you can put your hand on a cut and as soon as you take the hand away, it's, it's, it's the hurts again with this one. Like I put, you know, somebody put a, a hand on the cut and then took it away and it was gone. So it's really interesting that that just kind of confused my understanding in the moment, made me challenge what I thought I knew. Yeah, and we're, we're still so far. So it's most people think that uh, we're we have all the answers through research, and research really in these types of things, the basic sports science research is only several decades old. I mean, you go back to the uh, certainly resistance training. We're talking like the 1980s mm -hmm. is when the 
genesis of it uh, started for the most part. And really, it's only been over the past maybe 20 years that we've had a lot of uh, a lot more research. It's been much more extensively researched. We had a few labs back in the previous century, and uh, now it's it's exploded. So I would hope that over time you're going to see a uh, uh, it'll be an exponential increase in our understanding over the next five, 10 years, and that will start to get more concrete answers to these questions. But I know, you know, people come to a researcher and say, you know, tell me what the research is. And you got to let them know that uh, the research still is, we're still speculating on a lot of these things because the research is, for in many respects, inconclusive. Yeah, all the, re- all the good researchers I know have, say, I have no idea. Here's what I think. <laughs> That's what seems to be the response. Um, so question for you, Brad. I'm curious about the, the kind of the four phases of a rep and how those are mechanistically different, how those are influencing, you know, maybe the metabolic stress, the tension, the damage, and ultimately the outcomes of it. So when I say, you know, maybe three phases, so concentric, eccentric, isometric, uh, kind of the, shit, the, the direct directional change. So I'm curious if, if you have any insights on, you know, walking us through each of those mechanistically, how they may be different. Sure. So I'll start with the transition phases, the quote-unquote isometric transition phases. Um, really not much evidence. We don't just, that's not been a studied topic, so it's very difficult to know. There's been one study in particular that kind of intrigues me, and I, I think it's an area that I'd like to see more research in, perhaps our lab will do it, that showed that maintaining, uh, not locking out, basically keeping uh, tension within the muscle rather than having a lockout where you're held uh, might be better, but how that it's not comparing it to, let's say, a, a, a ISO hold at the top. Basically, it was just stopping at the top. So mm-hmm. anyway, these are things that need to be uh, figured out more. But concentric versus eccentric, we have a much better idea. And that's something that's been quite well studied. Um, both components of the uh, repetition, concentric and eccentric, certainly are important for hypertrophy. And they they are additive by all accounts that we have, that doing one or the other is, you'll have submaximal hypertrophy or suboptimal hypertrophy. So if you want to maximize hypertrophy, doing a complete rep, concentric and eccentric, uh, is important. Very interestingly, though, um, there are different, there at least seem to be different mechanisms by with by which hypertrophy is obtained, which would indicate that there is a synergistic aspect that you'll get uh, additive benefits uh, as far as that goes. There also was some good evidence that you get different hypertrophy in different regions. So we, it's very well documented that hypertrophy happens in a non-uniform manner, so regional specific. It's most seen in the quadriceps. We have a lot of evidence where the distal aspect, the uh, area closest to the knee, I, I just want to, I know some people in the audience might not know the scientific yeah. terms, so I want to make sure so the, the distal is the area closest to the knee, the proximal is the area closest to the hip, and the mid portion, of course, is in the middle. And that you'll see differential hypertrophic responses based on different types of training programs. Well, it's been shown that eccentric exercise tends to have greater hypertrophy distally in the quadriceps, and that concentric uh, actions have greater mid hypertrophy, uh, elicit greater hypertrophy in the mid region. So again, you're getting different mechanistic aspects, potentially. Again, more research needs to be carried out there. And also differential regional specific responses. So they're additive. And then that goes to what are mechanistically the underlying uh, rationales. Well, 
we do know there's greater tension on fewer fibers on eccentric action. So when you're lowering an action, a weight that uh, there is a, at least theoretically, some of the fibers will drop out and you're having more of the fast twitch fibers are taking over for the entire force producing capacity with a fewer number of total fibers. So more stress on fewer fibers. Could that be driving results? We don't know. Could it be the damaging aspects? So we talked before about the potential for muscle damage. Eccentric exercise is associated with greater muscle damage, damaging effects of, of uh, resistance training. So again, mechanistically, we can speculate, but there's no clear path to it. Um, but certainly what I would say is, is that A number one, uh, very strong rationale for doing both eccentric and concentric actions. And I do think that of all the... Um, all the advanced training methods that probably eccentric overload, eccentric, accentuated eccentric contractions probably have the, at least to this point, the most uh, sound rationale for uh, using that you use a weight higher than your concentric 1RM or certainly higher than your training load. Uh, a great way to do that in an ecologically valid way is let's say in a leg extension or a leg curl, you go up with both legs and you lower with the, with, one leg. So you could do like first one up and you lower with your right leg, second one up, you lower with your left leg and uh, you can eccentric overload in that fashion. Very interesting. So I'm, I'm curious about the accumulation of the process of accumulation of strength and, you know, mechanistically what we know is happening. I'd love to have you describe that for the audience. And I'd love to know what you think the best interventions are. So like, I think if we start to understand what the nervous system does at, at its you know highest level to to increase strength. Um, obviously, there's many different potential um, cont contributors, but I'm curious what you think, uh, or what, if you explain what mechanistically is happening when we accumulate strength, and then how we would kind of extrapolate that to say, okay, these are the variables we need to be incorporating into a strength training program. Yeah, well, um, strength is a basic adaptation. So I'll kind of regress the discussion first and say that every adaptation in the body is specific to survival. So the body loves to be in homeostasis. It does not want to change. You have to force it to change. Why does it change? It feels there's a threat to its survival. So the acquisition of strength, if you repeatedly uh, challenge the body in a manner where it thinks its survival is threatened, it will then initiate a response that uh, is specific to increasing its strength so that it will be able in the next time that stress is imposed, the, the strength challenging, uh, um, strength imposition uh, is, is challenged, and that will be able to respond to it in the appropriate manner. Um, and that has to do with multiple factors. That has to do with um, recruiting more muscle fibers, reducing um, the activity of the antagonist muscles. So we have an agonist antagonist. Let's say you're doing a biceps curl. The biceps would be the agonist. The triceps are the antagonist. If the antagonist is firing during the biceps action, which by the way happens in an untrained subject because they don't know what they're doing, basically, uh, the it will impair the ability for the biceps to maximally carry out its function. You're having uh, antithetic actions going on. So the, the body looks to reduce the activity of the antagonist or the agonist can fire more. It's going to have greater recruitment of muscle fibers. It's going to get greater um, coordination between the muscles. So a synergy, uh, it's called synchronization 
basically all the motor units firing as one rather than firing in, at different times. There's an increase in the firing rate, which is called rate coding. So there's more units firing at a higher uh, rate. So, so just multiple factors. There's other, and there's other things too, which are, I think, beyond the scope of what we could talk about, but doublet firing and, and other factors. Um, the optimal program uh, is kind of what we all know through powerlifting type routines is, is lifting heavy. Uh, how that how you go about that, there's certainly just like for hypertrophy, different strategies and theories, but you have to include very heavy lifting to maximize the response. Now, I will say that training with light loads, you can gain strength. Now, maybe a power lifter wouldn't, or you wouldn't at a very, very high level, but even fairly well-trained subjects, you know, your average gym goer, they can train with 20, 30 reps. And as long as they're pushing the failure, they will get some increases in strength. Not as good as if you train with a 10 RM or a 10 RM won't be as good as if you're training with a 3 RM. Uh, but also remember, uh, hopefully this is uh, inherent and that people know this, but that if you continue to train heavy all the time, it's not very conducive to joint health and to recovery. So you need to then have uh, accessory exercises included at lighter loads. And that comes down to programming strategy and, and also just expertise in terms of your own uh, theories as to what, what are best. Yeah. Have you ever incorporated, uh, or what does the research show around incorporating isometrics? Because I'm curious, um, you know, you know, if you could walk through like the process of what's actually happening when someone performs an isometric, and if there seems to be, as far as the data goes, cross benefit into accumulation of strength versus accumulation of hypertrophy. Yeah. So the problem with isometrics are is that strength is very specific to the angle that the isometric is trained at. So where isometrics seem to have their greatest utility is in getting past sticking points. Positional so let's question. say you're having a, you know, there's certainly a sticking point that everyone has uh, that, that's called the sticking point in an exercise. And you, you can basically do isometric training at that sticking point to try to get around that. The um, It's somewhere around 15 degrees either side of the isometric contraction where there's the greatest strength um adaptations happen. Yeah. yeah, the transfer of, of training. But um, you're certainly not going to get a good throughout the range of motion adaptation. It just becomes very inefficient to do uh, isometrics at all different ranges of motion. It's just not an efficient way to train. But I do think it's an effective strategy to help to get past sticking points. And there are individual sticking points. Some people just based on their own what are called internal moment arms uh, might have more trouble in certain ranges of motion than, than other people would. And it can be, I think, a strategy to help get around that. I love that you brought that up. And that's something that I dive into a lot is external internal versus external moment arms. And is that something you guys study or maybe you personally study a lot when it comes to uh, the way you approach studies and research, like looking at the individual variances and, and what considerations do you think should be made? Yeah. So generally in research, you don't, your research is is it tends to be um, suited to producing mean values. So mm -hmm. we look at a given topic and then we're looking to see what the average person is going to respond to. There's always very, very high inter-individual responses or almost always, depending upon what you're, you're studying. And, you know, I'm not a biomech, uh, generally my research, I'm, I shouldn't say that. I've done some biomechanical uh, work. I have a student now that's doing it, but that's not my primary area of focus. 
uh, I'm more the on the hypertrophy end in terms of physiologic aspects and uh, applied mechanistic applied mechanistic aspects. Um, but certainly you're going to take that into account when you're doing the program. So research is only, uh, the sole purpose of research is to produce guidelines, general guidelines. And then people like yourself who are doing uh, consulting in practice, and, and I do that sometimes as well uh, when I consult with someone, that's where you have to use your own expertise and, uh, and look to uh, understand what someone's limitations are, abilities, uh, injuries, uh, you know, are going to be taken into account too. Previous injuries, uh, which can uh, affect their ability to train. So, yeah, um, internal moment arms are going to uh, be a factor to some extent. Um, muscle fiber typing, although it tends to be, you know, fairly uh, consistent within people, there's still a good range of uh, values. And look, if you look at the difference between a distance runner and a sprinter, I mean, there can be at the extreme ranges, huge differences in fiber type, yeah. which has been well-documented. But to, again, to try, there's no way that you're going to, when you're working within an individual, other than looking at the person, you're not going to biopsy someone to to look at what their fiber Mr. Andy Galpin, then he or, just calls him. But I don't think he even does that with, uh, maybe at a very elite level athlete, you do that. But even then, I'm not sure... I, so even if you know that, I'm not convinced you can do much to train around fiber type. We actually have carried out research that has looked to to see whether there is um, specifics. There, I still do think there might be beneficial effects of using lighter loads for uh, type to try to tar target type one fibers, but it's unless you're dealing with very pure fibers like a soleus muscle. The vast majority of fibers are 60-40 one way or the other. Right, so let's right. say you biopsy someone and you see he's 60-40 and then you biopsy someone else and they're 40-60. Are you going to really alter their training that much? And Is a lighter load necessarily going to get them better results? I'm not convinced it would. Um, so I'll tell you where I kind of anecdotally see a difference. Is, so we do do a lot of genetic testing and whether or not that's specific to muscle types, like, you know, you can do your genetics and say you're fast twitch or slow twitch. And, and I don't usually in the beginning let it influence my training, my my decisions. But over time, what I tend to see is people who are, who are genetically predisposed to be fast twitch tend to do better with lower volume. And people who are uh, slow twitch tend to do better with higher volume subjectively. That's, again, that's just my anecdotal observation. Um, so you know, you know, again, there's also the endo-acto conversation where, you know, sometimes people who are more fast twitch tend to be more endomorphic, um, but again, or sorry, more ectomorphic. Um, but yeah, so that, that's what I see anecdotally within the people that I work with is the people that do genetics. I'll often on the, like I say, on the people who are high, you know, fast twitch, you know, in on the genetic report. So I'm not exactly sure what they're testing, I'm not testing muscle fiber specifically. Um, I do tend to err on the side of lower volume for them and higher frequency. It seems to work. That's a really interesting hypothesis. So, I mean, certainly we see, I've done work on volume studies where uh, we look at different the effects of different volumes. And certainly there is a very wide inter-individual variability. It would be, I think it would be interesting to test if we did combine that with biopsies to test. How did you train, Brad? I'd be very curious. Like you're naturally ectomorphic, I guess. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I'm naturally probably mesoendo. Where, what would you, your typical volume fall high, low, medium? Um, you know, to me, those are somewhat ambiguous terms. Um, I, I would say probably moderate, uh, you know, if you want to look at what most people would consider on the spectrum, uh, somewhere in a 10 to 15 uh, set range per muscle per week. 
Um, but I will say this, that on lagging muscle groups, um, I've actually done this recently and seen an effect when I've uh, done a uh, specialization phase and looked to bring up muscles. So again, I, I do a really interesting uh, point though, that I don't know whether that I'm, when you say I'm naturally ectomorphic, could one muscle be, it's not necessarily that every muscle is the same. So. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, you said you went through a specialization phase. What does that look like? Yeah, where basically for a short period of time, four weeks, I added on uh, additional sets for that muscle group and then took them away from. So I, I do like to think of volume in terms of a total, the total amount of volume for your body. Because I do think when there's a systemic, when I say I think, certainly we know from a overtraining standpoint, you get beyond a certain amount of volume systemically and it just overtaxes the body. And I will also say that, you have to look at the types of exercise you're doing because um, a squat and a, a row are going to have greater systemic effects than a bicep curl and a lateral raise. Um, but just overall, I try to keep volume within a certain, uh, you know, rough amount and then add on more volume to lagging muscle groups and take it away from others. So basically it was adding on uh, roughly 20, increasing the volume by roughly 25%. And I will tell you this. So, I mean, I worked with, over the past several years, I've worked with some very high-level competitors. Uh, one of them's a pro bodybuilder. I'll give a shout-out to my buddy, Joe Tolvi, who I, I worked with in getting his IFBB pro card. He's a uh, classic bodybuilder. And uh, exactly what we did. Now, he's naturally very mesomorphic. Um, but, I mean, he his lagging muscle groups were his hamstrings and his side delts. And we would then you know, have uh, much less volume for his biceps, which are a strong point. Um, his quads, which were a strong point. And we just did basically four days a week. He was doing hamstrings with different exercises, different volumes. And we just took it away from some of the other exercises. And really we have pictures, I have photos really brought up the muscle groups yeah. over a short period of time. And, and, yeah. and that's in a highly trained individual. Yeah, it, well, for sure. Like, you know, the top bodybuilders in the world come to me to bring up the weak body parts. And the first thing I'll say is like, first fix what you do. Right. So, sorry, fix how you do it and then we'll fix what you do. Right. So most people are doing it wrong as a foundation. I believe like they're not, they're not driving tension to the right place. It's being distributed rather than isolated and then increasing the frequency to a point gradually, typically where, um, you know, their body's able to recover from it seems to be a really effective strategy. And you can do that certainly, as you say, in 30 days and then maybe you repeat it in two or three months. And exactly. yeah, the, the progress is tremendous. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome, man. So I'm curious how much you're in, in, incorporating, um, so like mTOR, me mTOR mechanisms in your hypertrophy studies. Obviously, so when we're looking at um, you know the the physical stimulus, that's only one part of the equation. So I'm curious how much you're tying in the mechanistic aspect as far as you know nutrition and mTOR um, and and bridging the gap between those two. Yeah, I'm not doing a lot of work. So we don't, uh, unfortunately, in New York, we need a doctor to do biopsies. So I can't do like intracellular signaling work. Uh, we just can't look at that. I've collaborated with other labs where we're doing some interesting work in that area. Um, but in our lab, we're just New York requires that you have a physician present. If you're in, uh, you're in Florida now? Or yeah. 
uh, Florida, I think, is pretty liberal as far as that goes. And they allow, I certainly know like Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Alabama, they allow the researcher to do their own biopsy work without supervision. So I'm not really uh, able to do that, but I certainly have collaborated on unmechanistically looking at intracellular signaling work. And um, I'm not sure what the question is. So I, I mean, my, our lab generally is looking more at the applied aspects. We look at, I look to, um, to research topics and variables, strategies that have been bandied about uh, in gym lore. Yeah, that's that's my background. I'm a former yeah. meathead bodybuilder and personal trainer, and I'm kind of researching all the things that I always wanted to know about when I yeah. was in as a practitioner. Yeah, and one of the most interesting studies you put out a few years back now, I think, was comparing low versus high rep. And you mentioned that briefly, but if you could share that a little bit more about that study. Yeah, uh, so we looked at, uh, I thought it was one of the most interesting studies I've carried out. And I'll give a little background to it. A colleague of mine uh, based in Canada, I know you're from Canada, Stu Phillips, a really excellent right. researcher out of uh, uh, McMaster University. Yeah. They had done a study in untrained subjects doing leg extensions, and they showed that light loads basically was 30% 1RM versus 80% 1RM, both to failure. And they showed that there was no difference in hypertrophy between 30% and 80%. And I remember Stu posting uh, about this online in uh, one of my, not one of my finer moments, but I remember almost mockingly saying, Stu, come on, these are untrained subjects. They get jacked from doing cardio. I said, you watch, you know, they do spin cycling and their thighs are going to blow up. I'm going to do this in trained subjects and you're going to see there's going to be uh, light loads just are not going to provide a stimulus. Lo and behold, I carried it out uh, roughly a year later. We did biceps, triceps, quads. Uh, one group did 30% to uh, 30 reps to failure. It was 25 to 35 reps. The other group did 8 to 12 reps to failure. Everything else kept uh, the same. Three sets, uh, seven different exercises, total body workout three times a week. Zero difference in results. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were as similar as you could get, basically. And even the biceps, I would say, was somewhat biased towards the higher rep group to the 30 rep group. And uh, now the strength, as we just mentioned before, talking about strength, strength uh, gains were greater in the 10 RM than they were in the 30 RM. The 30 RM did gain strength, but it was uh, substantially greater, significantly mm -hmm. uh, greater in the uh, heavier load group. And uh, it just was proof of principle that even in uh, trained individuals, it is not the load that's dictating it. Now, we didn't do mechanistic work. Could there have been greater type 1 hypertrophy in the lighter load group? And it could have been made up for by greater type 2 hypertrophy in the heavier load group. There's been some research that points to that. Uh, other research suggests that's not the case. So um, that's something that still needs to be pointed out. I will say that in my own humble opinion, and when I do uh, consulting with other people and certainly in my own training, I like to mix in some higher rep training doing in that 20 rep range or so with some moderate rep and even some lower rep for strength. So I think having a spectrum of loading ranges, it's not going to hurt and it potentially can have. So that, that was the follow-up question is why, Brad? Well, it's not going to hurt. Because it's not going to hurt. And conceivably, you might be getting more type one fiber development in the, uh, in the lighter load training and that doing some of the heavier load, let's say the three to five range, even for, some short blocks or, or even just a few uh, sessions uh, can help you to train with heavier loads during your moderate load training, which then increases mechanical tension within your given load range and thus conceivably creates greater hypertrophic response. Do you, do you tend to mix those in a workout or do you tend to separate those? Uh, 
uh, it would depend. So I don't think that, so I'll give it to you this way. Uh, I know some people think there's a, uh, a conflicting effect uh, that there's, if you do them both in the same workout, the inhibit one inhibits the other zero evidence that I've seen of that. And uh, I certainly don't. So some of the things that I have done would be doing like, uh, heavy squats with five, at a five RM, then doing your leg press at a ten RM, and then leg extensions at a twenty RM in the same workout. That can be that's a strategy I've employed. I, I've liked to play around because there's no unless you're doing it in the. I think that would be an interesting research study, uh, but none of that has been studied. So we basically go by feel and what the person needs, et cetera. Yeah, what would be their argument in that case? Well, there, there's. What I've heard, I just don't think it's a valid argument. Certainly, it's not based in research. Uh, they've speculated that uh, strength and um, uh, what they call muscle endurance have uh, differential uh, mechanistic uh, effects, and, and it's just not been shown. Uh, th there's no. So you talk about intracellular signaling. There is no conflicting intracellular signaling responses that I'm aware of. Uh, certainly, it's not like cardio where you could say you're doing long, slow walking, where you could say that AMPK, which is a uh, an enzyme that uh, counteracts, if you will, mTOR, yeah. has an inhibitory effect on mTOR would come into play. AMPK is upregulated during resistance training, regardless of how heavy you're doing it. And it's not um, exponentially so in lighter load training that certainly that any research study is has shown to this point. So I, I think that some people over-speculate based on research that's taken out of context. I'm curious if you've ever come across any research with respect to like energy status of, of a muscle. So let's say I, I train my biceps today, I'll train them again tomorrow, and I train them again the next day. And obviously there's a bunch of metabolic things happening, but I'm curious just like just from a perspective of like energy status of the cell. Let's say I've been dieting for three months and my glycogen levels maybe are slightly depleted. Um, if that's in any way implicated in the muscle's ability to build muscle, like if there's any research um, specific to that, because that, that was always for me when I was competing, that was always an indication. Again, that's very subjective, but an indication if I saw a specific amount of drop off in my ability to do work, let's say 20% drop off from what I would do at the beginning of the workout, I would presume there's some level of fatigue accumulating and I would stop. Um, unless I was trying to intentionally induce fatigue in that muscle or systemically, in which case I would keep going. But if I was trying to build muscle, I would, I would be, you know, subconsciously or consciously aware of like how much of a drop-off I've seen from my peak ability to, to sustain performance. And then as it dropped below 20% of, of what I believed I could maximally do, the workout was done because I thought I was kind of tipping into these potentially more catabolic, more stressful spaces. Great question. And uh, so I'll, I'll start off just giving you a little rationale why you're, theory holds potentially holds water in that AMPK is an energy sensor. And when and one of the things it looks to sense is glycogen levels. So when glycogen levels are depleted, it will AMPK will be uh, released. It will be uh, activated in a uh, higher amount. So you're going to have increased AMPK activation. Um, there's conflicting evidence. So some research does show that intracellular anabolic signaling is impaired in a glycogen depleted state and other research does not. So it's tough to know. I think the rationale is there. And I think just given the conflicting nature of the research and giving at least a uh, logical rationale for it, it's probably not the greatest idea to train in a glycogen depleted state. And that's why to me, 
uh, training or utilizing a ketogenic diet probably is not the best for muscle building uh, because your glycogen levels will. Have be you ever low. done it, Brad? Have I uh, done, done a ketogenic like an extended diet? ketogenic diet? No, uh, I have not. I have certainly worked with athletes that have. Yeah. Uh, it's so just what I noticed is like subjectively with myself and athletes is you just lose the top gear. Like your ability to do work sustains. Like I could do longer periods of work personally, but I lose the top gear. I lose that like, you know, when, when you really want to like get after it, it's just not, or it is there, but it's only there for a short amount of time. So it's got, it's just high in glycogen, right? High in glycogen r- rate of synthesis. And and that would be certainly the, yeah. uh, the thought process. Now I will say the body, the muscles, unless you're doing really high volume work, the muscles are not going to be completely depleted. But if you're doing a workout where glycogen levels are already depleted, then you can almost fully deplete them. And that to me, at least from a performance aspect, I think you're right. You know, certainly that has credence. And certainly from an intracellular cellular signaling standpoint that you then at least conceivably would be ratcheting up activation of AMPK, which would interfere with your anabolic signaling cascade. So it just doesn't, to me, make sense. I, I do know I, I'm not anti-ketogenic diets for the average Joe who's, who's just right. looking to lose some weight, if that helps you. I don't think it's a panacea, by the way. Certainly, there's no evidence. Uh, I think some of that research is taken way out of context because you can lose weight you know, fairly equally on almost any diet as long as you're consistent with it and, and keep your energy deficit similar. But if that helps some people, it helps them to eat less. By cutting out uh, carbohydrates, it's, you're cutting out an entire food group. Uh, if you're not in at an elite level, or certainly if you're not looking to maximize your muscle growth, probably not going to be a big, uh, you know, have much of an effect one way or the other. Certainly for bodybuilders, not not something that I generally recommend they they do. Any insights on? And I'm going to put this in quotations, air quotes. Full range of motion versus partial range of motion. Yeah, I have a lot of insights, and that's a, another area that uh, our group has done uh, a good amount of research recently, and uh, that's starting to become much more clear. So again, as I mentioned, some areas of research were uh, still very in the real beginning phases of it. Uh, this is an area that's starting to really, I think, become apparent where we can start to draw more relevant conclusions. And um, there's very good evidence now that training in the at long muscle lengths uh, has greater effects than training in short muscle lengths, at least for certain muscle groups. Um, so it would depend upon the length tension relationship. So what, yeah, which muscles, like outside of the joint or inside of the joint? I'd be curious if there's a if there's a trend there. Uh, well, so the the muscles that have been most studied are the uh, the extremity muscles, so the quadriceps and the bicep and the hamstrings. Uh, so the muscles of the extremities, we don't really know as much for uh, the pectorals or the lats. And there's some issues in terms of that. Um, I still think that it would apply to certain effects, but I I will say this, and this is purely speculative. Uh, I'm collaborating with a colleague of mine who you might know, Brett Contreras. We have speculations. He's obviously the glute guy. He's heavily involved with the glute research and his, at least uh, he speculates that the glutes might have greater effects in the shortened range uh, because of their, how their their attachments, et cetera, and, and their length tension relationship. Um, that, that again is speculative. We have no research on that. So right. it's purely speculative. But I will say that uh, the research that we do have on the extremities, like I said, the quads, the uh, hamstrings, and, and the biceps, now we have a paper in, in uh, review on the biceps. 
really indicate that training at long lengths has greater effects than training at short lengths. And we out of a paper that at least for the rec fem, uh, the long length, so a shortened range of motion with equal loading where we equated the volume load actually had greater effects on hypertrophy than training through the full range of motion. So um, it just gives re- – now, I'm not saying that you should just train in a short Did range. Did you do that research yourself, Brent? No, this was uh, carried out in Brazil. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious. So typically when, when we talk short range, what my brain goes to is like everyone sucks in the short range. Therefore, they typically don't use the muscle they're trying to use in the short range. Their body finds a way to path least resistance. So I'm just curious who actually watched over what they were doing, right? Because like me spending time in that short position doesn't actually mean I'm using the thing I'm using because it's it's almost a week in their short position. So I'm curious if the body would just recruit other muscles to compensate. Like I'm sure um, somebody watched I, over that. I would, yeah. So a researcher watched over it. And I, I know the researcher. I, again, I wasn't there, so I can't mm. uh, comment on that. But what I will say is I helped to work with them on the paper and, and design the study. Uh, and I, I have no reason to feel that uh, they didn't do a good job yeah. supervising. But I would also say it was a leg, <clears throat> excuse me, a leg extension. So it wasn't like a squat where you can then start to look at uh, different aspects of form. There's just not much. I don't see what you can recruit in a leg extension. They're seated in a leg extension that we had a stop so they couldn't go past and I just don't know what really they could have done to recruit yeah. other muscles. Well, there, you, oh, okay, that's an, that's a different uh, thing then. So in a leg extension, if they're only going down halfway, is there not some research and again throwing this at you that that shows benefit in actually like, like how do you preload a muscle like you know that kind of pre stretch pre stretch concept uh, like without going to the stretch position? So you're asking them to load from a from a mid range, right? So they're not actually going right. through that full range. That, that so that adds a confounding variable. I would say. Did you guys consider that? Uh, research is a series of confounding variables. So, <laughs> no, you know, th- those were all things that yeah. you, uh, so could that have had an effect? I guess, you know, so yeah, one so. group basically went from a hundred degrees to 50 degrees. The other group, uh, another group did 50 degrees to zero degrees mm-hmm. and another group did a full range of motion. And we actually had four groups. Another group did half training at 50 to uh, zero and the other half training. So one, we'd vary from one session to the next the first session they did. Hmm. Uh, 100 to 50. And anyway, really oh. interesting findings. And, but this has been looked at in isometric research, where they've had them isometrically train at the uh, short range versus a length range, which would kind of take out the confounding aspect of yep. what you're talking about. Yep. And again, same thing, the long length had greater effects. So mm. again, there does seem to be uh, mechanistically, we can speculate is it that there is a uh, length tension relationships aspects that uh, there's greater force requirements in that uh, lengthened yeah. position. Yeah. Also, there happens to be greater muscle damage, generally speaking, in a lengthened range. Yeah. So whether all those factors aren't uh, taken into account or, or, or unknown at this point, I do want to say, and I think this is really important to point out, uh, when I give these types of uh, interviews, that we always we never want to think in binary terms that we train this way or that way. And I know you know this. I'm just saying this for uh, because people can take what I'm saying out of context. That to me, these research uh, studies help to provide insights into how maybe you can integrate things into training. So, yeah, yeah let's say the the uh, most of your training is done through a full range. Might there be a benefit of adding in some? partial range movements, just like you talked about training in an isometric range for increase it for helping getting through a sticking point. 
uh, could it be beneficial to do some of your training in a lengthen range? It doesn't have to be all training at one volume versus another volume. Like we talked about, you can have specialization cycles. It doesn't have to be all training at light loads versus heavy loads. When yeah. we do these studies, people are very binary by nature. And they like to think that a research study, because we look at one versus another, but the practical application always, that's where the true pros really shine in yeah. terms of understanding the limitations of this and, and the implications. In, uh, in well, the other way I explain it to people who come into my kind of world is like, we're just putting tools in your tool belt and then we're going to teach you how to use them. Right. So it's like, I'm going to impart you with all this knowledge and information, all these speculative theories and and then you're like, I have no idea what to do with all this stuff. And then it's like, now you got to go apply and learn how to, wh where the value of each of these is. When you run into a roadblock, okay, which tool do I use, right? It's not always a hammer. Sometimes you need something else. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah you, you, there, there are many different types of saws. So the same saw will not necessarily work or be optimal in every condition. Yeah. Um, so what are you most excited about in man? You've been doing this, you've been doing this a while now. I'm sure you're starting, is, does it feel like you're starting to narrow your focus or does it feel like your focus is getting broader because you know, the idea of the more, you, more you learn, the less, you know, right. Uh, it's a great question. Um, I, I do think that, uh, there's still so many curiosities that I have that I certainly like, I'm not running out of any topics and I, I now have, uh, I don't remember the last time we spoke, but I have a master's degree program. We're going into our fourth year where I now have a lot of really great master's students. And that just really helps to facilitate my research efforts. And they have, they're coming in with great ideas. I have some, just some really top level students, but um, I'm doing some good collaborations on mechanistic aspects. So we're looking, uh, one of the things that I have in the works is a collaboration with a lab. We're going to look at lactate as a potential mediator, hypertrophic mediator. And we're going to look at that as that additive versus redundant, uh, if it has an effect at all. Um, there's still a lot I want to look at. So I will give a shout out I'm, uh, on the uh, scientific advisory board for tonal. I don't know if you've seen yeah. the commercials for tonal. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm doing, uh, basically I'm helping with their research efforts and carrying out research on that. And that just the, the machine itself, uh, I wouldn't have agreed to be on their advisory board if I didn't love the product, but it has some really cool advanced training methods. So it has like a variable resistance component where it tries to match the strength curve uh, to to, to the resistance, the human strength curve, to the resistance that's being carried out. And we're going to be looking at whether that has benefits. So if you're able to keep the resistance constant through the full range, is that better than doing, let's say, a standard bicep curl? Yeah. It has an accentuated eccentric component. So anyway, there's just a, a whole host of things that... Um, Do you know Tom Purvis, Brad? I know of Tom. I don't know him personally, but yeah, I know... You connect with him, man. So when it comes to that stuff, like he'd be the guy to talk to. Yeah, I remember he was with, uh, so, was it Soloflex or uh, um, one, one of those? He was, he was a Bowflex guy. Yeah. Bowflex, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I was always impressed with his uh, um, combining the biomechanical aspects to uh, applied theory. Yeah, yeah, he's just a brilliant guy and, and just challenges everything, right? He, he's he's very contrarian in his approach, which is great because uh, he'll poke holes in theories and, and challenge what he thinks and challenge what you think. And I think you guys will get along really well, man. Just like deep level thinkers applying your your superpowers in the same direction always works out well, well hopefully. Yeah, I'd be happy um, to, uh, if you have an introduction, I'd be happy to. Uh, oh, happy to do it. Um, so tell me about your book, man. You just recently released a new book and uh, you, you wrote a book a few years back and now you got a new one. And I'm curious, um, one, what motivated this book? And two, tell us what's in it that we need to know. 
Yeah, so there's two. So uh, they're both second editions. The first book is, or the, when I say the first book, the uh, less recent book was the second edition of my textbook, which is called The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. And that's a real geeky book for uh, generally that requires more of a scientific background. Someone like yourself certainly would uh, be able to groove to that. But I discuss mechanisms a lot really deep into the mechanisms of hypertrophy and really just geek out on the science. Uh, the second book, and, and just that was time because it was five years or so since publication of that. And there was more science, that uh, a lot more science. So I wanted to expand on that. The newest book uh, is the second edition of my book called The Max Muscle Plan. So that's that's a decade old. And uh, that's that's more of a consumer-oriented book where I provide a template of a training program. It's more for those. Uh, it does delve into the scientific aspects to some extent, but it's really more for those who just want to plan. And, and really, I try to teach them how to understand how to develop their own program, how to customize a program for themselves. Uh, and there's just been the last 10 years, my views have changed a lot. So I, I also understood certain things after having written it, things I didn't cover that I needed to. So it's about 50% of the book is new. And I do want to give a shout out to uh, the late, great John Meadows, who was, uh, wrote the forward to the book. I'm really so sad that uh, he did not get to see uh, the book in print. He was a really good friend of mine, a great colleague, and just someone I had the ultimate respect for as a practitioner, kind of like yourself, someone who really took the science and, and tried to uh, take that into bodybuilding terms and to educate the public. And um, as you know, and just really sadly passed away. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really unexpected, really sad. Um, and then just it's happening a lot in bodybuilding, right? And so it's actually been the foundation of a lot of things I'm doing kind of in the background is trying to collaborate with really, really smart people to bring better information to the, to the young aspiring bodybuilders, because it seems as though this culture of the internet instant gratification culture has kind of driven down the path of, of, you know, Hey, take more gear. We're less about your health. We're less about your training. Just take more stuff. And again, that's not that John was that way, but um, a lot of these guys dying, I think is uh, just, a, just a, uh, an, it needs to create an initiative to let bodybuilders know that there's, um, yeah, again, John's scenario, I shouldn't bring it up in that same context because obviously he had different health concerns uh, with his gut and stuff. But um, yeah, I just, man, I think what bodybuilding can be so much more effective. And I know during my career, I didn't have access to the people that I wish I did, like yourself and like a lot of other people who could just make the process a lot more about um, you know, personal development and a lot about physical development rather than about science. Like when I say science and chemicals, let's make it chemicals. Um, so I really try to, to collaborate with people who can help young aspiring bodybuilders do it in a way that is correct and healthy and, and um, health promoting rather than taking away. It's such a great uh, endeavor. Um, and then I, I will say that just I'll, I'll get on my soapbox that bodybuilding is supposed to be a healthy sport. Drugs have been in it for a while, but if you look at the old school bodybuilders, you go back to the Arnold era. I mean, they're generally been quite healthy. Certainly, you don't see at least that I think never seen a study, but they haven't. There wasn't a uh, disparity between them dying very young and the general public. If anything, I think they lived longer. Um, but you just see now, it's bodybuilding to me has just gotten to a point where I don't even follow it anymore. At the upper levels, I think the classic bodybuilding is it's kind of where the old school and it was intended to be with the old school yeah. health healthy body was and and the uh, ideal aesthetic physique was supposed to be. But it's gotten to the point where they're cartoon cartoonish. 
And uh, I just, no one can relate to that. It's such a niche sport at this point. Right. That, and, uh, and honestly, it came down to like, who's got the best chemist, you know? And that, and that just, right. that's just not fun to compete, right? Like I'll compete against anyone when it comes to effort and, you know, doing my best in the gym and writing the best programs and dieting the most effectively. Uh, but when it comes down to like, Hey, I know this guy's going to beat me because he's got a better chemist. Like, that, that's not a fun sport to participate in. And, you know, it's, it was a sad reality. And I think it's still part of the reality. And I think eventually it'll wean its way out. I think, you know, ultimately now it's just a, it's a challenging time. We're going to go through ebbs and flows. Um, but yeah, hopefully bodybuilding comes around. Man. And, and listen, you're a big part of our understanding of doing it more effectively. And John was a big part of our understanding of doing it more effectively. So if all of us support each other, lift each other up, man, I think we're all going to help the future community. So Brad, thanks for being here, man. My pleasure, dude. Anytime. Thanks, man. Oh, where should people find your book? Uh, it's in Amazon.com. Uh, any bookstore has it. So Cool. And we'll link to all your stuff in the show notes. We'll link to all your most recent studies that you mentioned. We'll link to the book and uh, anywhere else where you can find Brad Schoenfeld online. will be linked in the show notes at muscleintelligence.com slash podcast. And we will see you soon. Awesome. All right. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for being here on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. In the podcast, Brad mentions body specialization programs, body part specialization programs. And if that's something you're interested in, if you're someone who wants to build muscle, any muscle, I've put together the, the greatest guides that I could come up with. So I literally wrote down everything, every tip, um, every specific thought process that I've ever had around each specific body part. And you can pick up those guides for free. No cost to you. Head over to muscleintelligence.com slash body part. So muscleintelligence.com slash body part. And you can pick up one of the guides for free. I'm also going to hook you up with my three favorite workouts for that body part. Now, if you want, so you're going to get, I think it's each about nine to 10 page guides, which photos and really amazing tips, literally stuff you've never heard before on uh, how to optimize any specific body part. So if it's glutes, if it's quads, if it's abs, if it's pecs, if it's delts, if it's arm, what doesn't give anything, calves, you want BPAC calves, go get the body part guide. And we're going to give you an opportunity to pick up a 30 day program for a very, very low cost. Um, just to ultimately uh, allow you to build the muscle in the fastest amount of time. So if you want to apply these principles that you learned in today's podcast into your training right now, you can pick out for a super low cost. Head over to muscleintelligence.com slash body part and do that. And don't forget to support our, our sponsors for today's podcast, our amazing friends over at Buy Optimizers. Both Matt Gallant and Wade Lightheart have been guests of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast in the past. Two incredible guys who set out on a mission to change the sports supplement industry forever. And in my opinion, they have some of the best products in the world. High, high quality, highly efficacious, really, really thoughtfully designed. And they're not doing it like everybody else. Everyone asked me why I haven't done a supplement line yet. And to be honest, the reason is I don't want to do it like everybody else. Everyone else is doing the same stuff over. It's regurgitated. It's boring. I'm tired of it. And so that's why I love Matt Gallant and Wade Lightheart, the president's and CEO of Bioptimizers, doing it really well with their team, doing it with the heart first and ultimately helping people. So ladies and gents, head over to bioptimizers.com, use the code MUSCLE10 to get hooked up with 10% and support this podcast and support Bioptimizers and ultimately support your health. Thanks for being here, guys. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.